Welcome to another episode of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Joe Stoltz sits down with Dean Norton, the Director of Horticulture, to discuss the gardens and planting operations at Mount Vernon. As a friendly reminder, there is still time to register for the Special Luncheon Fellowship with Joyce Lindorf taking place on Thursday, January 24th. More information can be found on the website for this podcast at mountvernon.org slash podcast. Be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and follow the Washington Library on all social media platforms. And now, Dr. Stoltz's interview with Dean Norton. Dean, thank you so much for coming on the show with us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, I guess to start off, could you just talk to us a little bit about um, sort of your background and how you got to be at Mount Vernon? Sure. Uh, my neighbor had money and I didn't, and I asked him, what do you do? And uh, I didn't want a 4 a.m. paper route um, like some of my other friends had. He said, well, I work at Mount Vernon. I said, well, I mean, what do you do when you go to Mount Vernon? He says, I mow grass, pick up trash, and chase sheep. I was like, wow, that sounds great. And so I came and had the big five-minute interview and was hired immediately. So I, I started as a paper picker. Mm-hmm. Uh, the horticulturist that was here took a liking to me, encouraged me to continue uh, down a road to get a degree in horticulture. And he actually even said, someday when I retire, you're of the age, you may want to take my position. So um, a little bit preordained, I guess, but it all worked out for me. I attended Clemson University, go Tigers, and uh, got a degree in horticulture, came back and started my horticultural um, task here at Mount Vernon as a boxwood gardener. Mm-hmm. Uh, the gardens were especially the upper garden, was full of English boxwood. And uh, then the um, horticulturist uh, retired, and in 1980 I was promoted to horticulturist, and, and here I am. So June 23rd, uh, this next year will be 50 years. Wow, 50 years. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I haven't even hit four yet, so 50 is kind of intimidating. Well, five will be a big one for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, get, I think I get a lapel pin, right? Yeah, yes. absolutely, yeah. yes. So what do they get for 50, do we know? I don't know. I hope it's a car. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be, but yeah. uh, I've gotten some nice gifts. Yeah. Most yeah. of them go to the kids. Um, I don't really know how that works out. One of them went to my wife, so I really haven't gotten anything yet, so maybe maybe 50 I'll yeah. take some. Um, well, so this episode's actually going to air... I think this. I think when you all are listening to this, it'll be probably like the second week of January. So, hey. if the college football playoff hasn't occurred yet, it either will be about to. So, any predictions that we can hold well, to now? Off, yeah, we're recording this. Recording this uh, the week before Christmas. So, let's get the prediction in now. Okay. Well, first we have to get by Notre Dame. I think we will win that game. I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think we'll win that. Uh, if Alabama gets by Oklahoma, which why wouldn't they? Um, because they're just Alabama. Um, you know what? I'm going to go for Clemson. It's a, it would be a historic game. It will be the first mm-hmm. time a college football team has gone 15-0 and 0 since, I think, 138 years or something like that. And why can't it be Clemson? So, yeah, go Tigers all the way. Nice. Uh, we, we try every now and then to throw in, like, a random sports thing. We're still waiting to see if uh, Dana Stefanelli with the uh, George Washington Papers will be right and, uh, and uh, um, um, uh, Bryce Harper will be suiting up in a, a oh. Nationals jersey. Next year. We'll see. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, back to horticulture. Yeah. Uh, for folks that are like me, and if you try and if you just even look at a plant, it dies. Mm-hmm. Um, what is horticulture? Well, horticulture, along with a lot of the sciences. Well, and, and, sorry. And, and, and sort of especially, you know, what is horticulture at a historic site? 
Well, whether it's at a historic yeah. site or modern day horticulture, horticulture, mm -hmm. um, and horticulture really hasn't changed for Jesus Christ's time. I mean, it's it's working the earth. Yeah. It's 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 knowing soils, it's planting, it's watering. Watering is pretty important. Most <laughs> people don't water properly, and that's what kills most of their plants. Or they just haven't planted things properly. But horticulture is the art and science of uh, the cultivation of plants. Um, and that's what we do here. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I went to school to learn about horticulture, but certainly not about history. That's not part of horticulture. Mm -hmm. But you end up at a historic site like Mount Vernon, that it comes with the territory. Yeah. Because uh, what horticulture is all about here is trying to recreate what Washington, Martha, George and Martha Washington had here 200 and some odd years ago. Um, as it would have been planted in the proper spaces, um, in the proper arrangements, uh, the gardens. I mean, we're, our job is to try to recreate those historic areas, landscapes and gardens as they would have been during that time. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's what I think is just fascinating with with what you all do. Um, you know, I'm I'm a classically trained historian, so I understand those aspects. And and you know, we we live, breathe, and die by footnotes, but um, <laughs> and and fall asleep. To footnotes and make undergrads sad with our footnotes. <laughs> um, but how, so how, how do you go about trying to figure out uh, what Washington grew and where he grew it? Well, we all follow the same um, roadmap, really. Mm -hmm. uh, primary documentation yep. is absolutely first. And yeah, talk about falling asleep. Remember the old uh, things that had the, the little cards, they were microfilm film things, and they were in little squares, and you had to do the little... Oh, microfiche, yeah. Oh, or my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my head hit that screen so often. <laughs> um, yeah, so we have to start with the primary documentation, mm -hmm. and Mount Vernon's rich, rich with that. I mean, uh, letters, diaries, uh, uh, accounts, ledgers, it's incredible. So you start with that, but that's just part of the story. Um, then you need to understand, read, and study the books that he read. What was he learning? Mm -hmm. uh, what was he getting out of those books? And not just that. What were his neighbors doing? What were they reading? What was influencing him? Because it just wasn't encapsulated here at this little property. It, it was the entire East Coast. It was mm -hmm. during his travels. I mean, look, it wasn't until 1785 that he decides to re-landscape Mount Vernon. And, and he just had gone through eight years of retreats and, and a few battles won here and there. Uh, and before that, traveling to Williamsburg, seeing some wonderful gardens there. So he mm -hmm. was really starting to gather tremendous information as far as what he may want to do with this country seat when he returned home. And, of course, what, what really started all that is here he had won our independence. People wanted him to be king. And he was big on first impressions. So he needed to create a landscape that was more fitting to the man he'd become. So mm -hmm. he had to take all these ideas and all of a sudden put you know, thoughts to ground and, and make that happen. So and that, that's what we do is try to gather all that information, have a complete understanding of the principles and practices of the 18th century, then take those things that he actually mentions himself and, and put that into the mix and come up with something that we believe is accurate as possible. And none of that can occur without the support of archaeology because, yeah. they, you know, they're the only ones that are going to find what may be left in the ground. So we need their support as well. Well, yeah, and I think that's... Uh you know, and we'll get, we're going to get uh, some of the archaeology folks on in the near future. Um, but as sort of a little teaser, uh, you know, I think people are, are used to the idea of, like, finding pot shards and, and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. How does archaeology play into uh, historic horticulture? Well, the first thing, of course, the easiest thing for them, and, and it may not be that easy, but to find— They make uh, it look easy. <laughs> they do at times. Uh, 
or they make stuff up, I think, yeah. sometimes. But, um, you know, looking for post holes. Mm-hmm. They're looking for paths mm-hmm. or wall remains or fence post remains so at least we can start understanding the actual enclosure Mm -hmm. and what was the size and what were the bones of the garden then beyond that um and i think they'll they will concur with this that uh, garden archaeology is not easy because mm-hmm. they're they're not looking for physical items necessarily. They're looking for different soil horizons, and that's hard. Yeah. And and when they were digging the upper garden back, um, you know, ten years ago or more, um, they found every horizon of every different garden. But that didn't come without digging it for a year or two before they could really even start to recognize them. Uh, so really, really difficult. Um, but you know, once they start to catch on, it's um, it's like a good football game. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's offense and defense. And once you start kind of figuring out what they're doing and the alignment that they're they're setting up and what that play may be, that's exactly what they do. They they, they get that understanding, and and that's again the key of what we do is you, it's it's like you've got to have the knowledge base before you can even begin. Yeah. Then things start to make sense. Um. Well, you, you sort of alluded to this uh, already uh, with Washington's sort of interest in gardening, and that's maybe something that uh, a lot of our listeners maybe aren't. I mean, that's that's the thing I always find fascinating with Washington is just the guy just hoovers up information yep. left and right and has so many different interests. Um, could you just talk to us in general about his, his interest in gardening? Well, well, you're right. I mean, he's a self-taught man, just totally incredible. And there wasn't anything that didn't seem to interest him. And and if it was something of great interest, he always sought out the best of the best person to contact, to write, to mm-hmm. truly amazing. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't think it's necessarily gardening. I think it's more plant-related. Okay. First of all, he loved trees. He loved nature. And his his conservation ideas and his his desire to um, to be a conservationist as far as forest and and uh, saving our natural resources that just comes comes across throughout his writings. Uh, but when it comes to changing his landscape, um, he becomes a landscape designer for a year and a half, mm-hmm. and and that's it. So January 12, seventeen eighty five, he writes in his diary that he's riding to his mill swamp looking for the sorts of trees and shrubs I shall want for my walks, groves, and wildernesses. And then for a year and a half, it's like every page or every few days, he's, he's listing more plants that he's found, and he's bringing them back, and he's creating the, the new bowling green, the serpentine avenues. He's changing the design of the gardens. He's bringing all these plants in, basically following the design principles of one particular man in a book called New Principles of Gardening, written by Batty Langley, which that book was published in 1728. So... You know, when people try to compare Jefferson and Washington, mm-hmm. Jefferson was more of a gardener. I think Washington, of course, they were both farmers, but I think Washington trumps him in the farming and the agricultural endeavors. Okay. Uh, Jefferson was, and of course, he lived so much longer, too. He had the Lewis and Clark expedition mm-hmm. that brought in so many more plants that could be utilized in garden situations. So um, it's, you know, it goes back to the, as, as I said, his first impressions. He, he wanted a garden that, one, supplied the ample amount of fruits and vegetables for his family and his guests. That, that was critical. And then he wanted serpentine paths for people to walk under the shade of the trees. He wanted a pleasure garden with a conservatory. I mean, it was really a masterful landscape. But was he a gardener? I'm going to say no. He was a farmer. Yeah. He was an agriculturalist. 
Now, um, you mentioned about the uh, the uh, the food mm-hmm. needs. Um, are are there any sort of, uh, sort of interesting things that Washington had here at Mount Vernon that maybe our listeners? Uh, wouldn't expect for uh, 18th century Tidewater, Virginia? I would say absolutely not. Okay. It's just, I mean, if you look at the, um, we have two years of Gardner's Weekly Reports, which mm-hmm. is really amazing. And and when you look at what they are planning, it's basically you're just, honey, go to Safeway and pick this up. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just uh, broccoli, cauliflower, lettuce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's the same, same sorts of things. But I think there you, you need to not look necessarily at exotics or things mm-hmm. like that. But what was the need? Yeah. And um, Washington and and his understanding of the importance of vegetables. Even during the Revolutionary War, he's encouraging his troops to eat greens as often as he could. And mm-hmm. one time he writes, during your idle time, plant a garden. Now, as I remember, their idle time was during winter encampment, so I don't really know how that would work. But, but anyway, um, he talks about vegetables often. Yeah. Martha says in her writings that vegetables are the best part of living in the country. So so they were by far the the plants of necessity. Mm-hmm. Even his pleasure garden, where he wanted flowers to be grown for their use and not for, the, for their beauty and not their use. The principal plants in that garden are vegetables. Yeah. He planted vegetables and surrounded them with a border of flowers, which that became the pleasure garden. So really, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sort of seem very Washingtonian that even when it's going to be aesthetic pleasing it still has to serve some sort of functional purpose as well that totally totally yeah. there's a beautiful property in Maryland with one of the oldest conservatories I think it may be Y house but I could be wrong there folks uh, but they have an amazing greenhouse and up on top of that is a billiard hall <laughs> now that guy was thinking fun mm-hmm. Washington's was sea storage and pause yeah. and things like that but you're right you know yeah, he yeah. was very functional he's very practical yeah and I do want to uh, you know point out or, or just you know call out again you, you mentioned you know, Washington loves vegetables so uh, anyone that's having trouble getting their kids to eat their vegetables, just, you know, it was good enough for the first president of the United I States. It's, exactly. I, I, I'm very bad it's about eating all, my vegetables. So It's all the method of preparation. Yeah. yeah. How you could put them on a grill and people love them. Yeah. I like extra fat. On the <laughs> Bacon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. No, I'm getting that's all right. Uh, well, so so what has been you know so we, we talked a bit about uh, sort of the the historic gardens uh, that we're here in the historic planning uh, in, in the past fifty years uh, of your time here um, what what have you all been sort of up to with rehabilitating uh, the historiosity of of the um, the estates gardens. Well, we've basically um, looked at and researched and worked to restore or make more authentic every garden enclosure with the exception of the kitchen garden. Mm -hmm. Uh, The vineyard enclosure, which uh, we call the fruit garden and nursery now, just it's more descriptive for the visitors here. They know more of what they're going to see didn't exist. Mm -hmm. So through that was really the first time that archaeology and horticulture, the written word, married beautifully. We were able to recreate that wonderfully. The botanical garden, that was all a matter of just uh, a very small garden up near the house of just doing the research um, because Washington was so specific and so detailed about that, which he was about things he was really most interested in or that were new and different to him for him. So that was relatively, that was just a matter of punting, getting some plants out that didn't belong and bringing mm-hmm. the ones in that did. Now, the upper garden was the most significant, I would say, uh, five years of archaeological work and 
a, a lot of research, charrettes with other professionals in the field, and and that was that was just tremendously exciting. And to see a 18th century pleasure garden, basically the rebirth of that enclosure right in front mm-hmm. of your eyes. That I think if George and Martha Washington were to come back, they would feel quite comfortable in that space. And now the archaeologists are digging in the South Grove and. And once that's all done, hopefully we can recreate that. So, I mean, that's the most exciting thing is it, it always involves the research. It's always involved going back to the records. And who can't get lost in mm-hmm. it when you start reading it? It's, it's fascinating. Has there been anything that surprised you all that you've uncovered? Um, no. I think what's surprising, what's, what's always surprising, is that when you have charrettes or when you have people from the outside come in that have not been so wrapped up in all those things you've been studying, all of a sudden they bring up something that you thought, oh, I hadn't really thought of that mm-hmm. or I hadn't really looked at it in that way. Because, you know, it's all about interpretation. Yeah. I mean, we, we have all this information, but it's it's not complete. It's a 500-piece puzzle, of which we have maybe 375 pieces. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. But it doesn't complete the puzzle exact, and so you're you're making the best educated uh, guesses. I guess I that's probably not a good word, but but then and you feel so confident about it, and then somebody will come in front of the blue and go, "Well, what about this?" And you go, "Hmm, hmm," you know. It makes you rethink everything. Yeah. But that's another reason why I know we always say I always say that you can never write the final chapter in anything we do because they're still discovering new letters, maps. Who knows yeah. what we may still find. So, and archaeology, too. It's, it's gone from bulldozer work looking for foundations to microscopes and yeah. and phytolith studies. It's just amazing. Yeah, I mean, they've even, if I remember right, they've even like uncovered seeds before, right? That have helped oh, yeah, them. seeds, pollen. Yeah. I mean, come on. Are you kidding me? It's it's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, what, uh, is, there, is there anything uh, sort of particularly exciting you all are working on now you'd like to tell our listeners about if they haven't had the chance to come to Mount Vernon uh, fairly recently? Um, you know, we, we can be a little boring, um, but it's uh, boring in a great way because we're not here to continue to look for ways to change and improve mm-hmm. and uh, to do this and do that because it's not our garden. Yeah, yeah. We are caretakers of George Washington's garden. And so we take amazing pride and we have great passion in in doing that. And we just really want people to come to see not just horticulturally, not just our livestock staff who maintain three very rare breeds and interpret mm-hmm. them at our Pioneer Farmer site, but all staff here at Mount Vernon houses, outbuildings, to see without a doubt the most accurately represented 18th century um, home of, a, of a, one of our founding fathers, of the founding father. Um, they've just got to come see it, and mm-hmm. not just once, because I love the staff that I see walking around the estate and coming into gardens, because Every week it changes. Yeah. Every month it's just a whole new garden. So I love those people that, that get our annual passes, and, and they become friends. They, they're mm-hmm. always walking through, and they ask us what's going on. I encourage people to come and talk to the gardeners, talk to staff. We have an amazingly um, just wonderful staff here in the visitor comment cards. You just see that all the time. People want to share our story and what we do, and, and, and we do it, I think, in a really wonderful way. Yeah, and I, I can speak on behalf of most of the library staff that one of you know one of our favorite sort of fringe benefit perks of working here is you know 
that lunchtime sort of walk through the garden when you just need to get away from the computer and right. just go take in the garden. It is such a they are such fabulous spaces to just sort of go lose yourself uh, in. And as you said, you know every you know you wait two weeks and it's going to be a totally different experience. Well, a tremendously quick story is uh, Andrea Wolf, who who visited here and wrote a wonderful book. Uh, entitled Founding Gardeners, mm-hmm. writes a story that they were at a, a tremendous impasse in trying to complete the um, Constitution, and uh, there were states that just were not going to vote for it. And a group of them decided to take a break and visit Bartram's garden. Mm-hmm. And they were in a garden space. They were in a garden that represent, had, plants, had plants that represented the entire 13 colonies, and it just changed their outlo- outlook. Yeah. It changed everything. They went back and they voted and they approved it. So, yeah, gardens... Uh, are, are amazingly powerful, and I think um, when people need a little bit of a break from the stress or whatever, take a stroll out in the garden. Yeah. It's really very special. Um, well, that sort of brings up, uh, you know, maybe we can uh, zoom back out a bit to, to some history for a second, because, um, you know, what, what was, you alluded to it a little bit with first impressions, but what is, what is sort of the uh, allure and point to, to gardens in the 18th century. You know, why, why are people like Washington and Jefferson um, spending so much time worrying about gardens? Huh. What a great question. Um, well, it's kind of taming nature a bit. Mm-hmm. I think, although, especially Washington and Jefferson, it was a matter of taking your natural surroundings and trying to incorporate them within a landscape that was somewhat cohesive. It mm-hmm. wasn't... Uh, something that would shock you. I mean, Washington planted in a way that was random to try to mimic nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, they both adopted the naturalistic design principles, which had re- were really popular in England. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think it was just a way for them to show their own personality and love of plants. And and when people came to visit their home, that. They weren't there for necessarily the entertainment in the house, but before and after dinner, the idea was to stroll the gardens and grounds. Mm-hmm. So go back into this wonderful environment that he had created for your enjoyment where you could walk through groves, serpentines, shrubberies, wilderness areas, and a pleasure garden. I mean, it's he just incorporated this wonderful natural surroundings in a very small, tight, six-acre Area. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing, actually. So, um, it was a love of nature, love of plants, and I think for them to to put their own touch on it was just very special. Yeah, I mean, I think um, where I was sort of going with that, what I had in mind was uh, uh, I, I just fairly recently uh, was reading Pride and Prejudice, and and you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, the the importance uh, that Jane Austen plays in having her characters discuss about, oh, you should really go check. You know, to the the, you know, the north side of the house, or, or you know, who's really qualified to to go uh, sort of walk through certain areas and sort of give a tour? Because um, yeah, as you said, you know, it is it is fascinating to see ex- the extent to which uh, a lot of these sort of country estates in Mount Vernon is, you know, certainly the American equivalent of an English country estate. Um, the extent to which, uh, not even just the gardens, but just sort of the natural landscape was part of the entertainment of um, the house. So was Washington doing? Uh, any sort of land management uh, for things other than gardens? I mean, besides, obviously, the the, the farms themselves. uh, Well, yeah. I mean, we see him planting grass buffers uh, Mm -hmm. along uh, his cultivated fields, basically to help 
um, eliminate or, or control erosion. Uh, we see him talking to his, his staff, his managers, that when you go out to get firewood, always get down trees first or dead trees. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to minimize the number of trees cut in the forest. I mean, they say that it took upwards of 10 acres of forest to provide enough wood for a plantation like Mount Vernon mm-hmm. for all the stove fireplaces that they had. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, someone went to Williamsburg and they said that the only shade you're going to find in Williamsburg is under a parasol because all the trees have been cut. Mm-hmm. Um, he also talks about wanting to not cut trees to build fences, but plant trees to create the fencing. Mm-hmm. So a living fence. So, yeah, it's... Uh, he was a real conservationist, and I mean that just comes out when he's at he's sixteen, seventeen forty eight. He's in Ohio in a, um, a surveying expedition, and he writes about four miles higher up river. We rode through the most beautiful groves of sugar trees, and for the best part of the day, we admired the beauty of the trees and the richness of the land. This is a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not out toilet papering Sally Fairfax's house. He's, he's admiring the beauty of the trees and just taking it all in. So it's, yeah. it's really quite amazing. Well, I've got a fun uh, sort of anecdote, uh, sort of the opposite of that. Or not the opposite, but you, you'll see where I'm going with this. Um, uh, my background's military history. And um, Washington keeps a journal. One of the only journals he keeps during the Revolutionary Wars is the Yorktown campaign. And, of course, at the beginning of that, they're still up in New York. Mm. And when they are, uh, Washington and Rochambeau are doing a reconnaissance to decide, will they, won't they attack mm-hmm. uh, northern New York? And this is the first time that Washington has seen northern Manhattan since he got run out in uh, 1776. Uh-huh. And uh, he writes in his journal, you know, this is a journal that presumably only he's going to see. Though we're not entirely clear on that if he's not thinking it. But sure. uh, he makes a comment quite angrily for Washington. As you know, he's not a guy that shows emotion a lot, oh, yeah. uh, especially in his writing. And he's mad when he's he's looking down, f- he's in New Jersey, he's looking down from the Palisades onto northern Manhattan, and he sees how denuded hmm. northern Manhattan has become because it's had so many British and Hessian soldiers encamped on it uh, for, at this point, liberal arts major, so give me a second, five years. Sure. Um, the British have used, they've clear-cut the trees sure. to, to, to make forts. Uh, as you said, you know, they needed firewood. Right. Uh, and Washington is mad that, as he phrases it, there's not, uh, there's not a, 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 he doesn't say plant, but, uh, you know, there's not a, a, a plant left in northern Manhattan that isn't taller than a man's waist. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. he, he comes off as quite upset by the environmental change that this British occupation has, right. has wrought. So, you know, that goes back to your, uh, your observation about his love of nature. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Um, well, any sort of uh, sort of last thoughts or or uh, anecdotes you'd like to, to share with us before we we head out? Yeah. Well, I think um, one of the principal things, the reason horticulture staff is here, is to observe and protect the um, the landscape, the gardens, to to maintain them in a professional manner. But I also want people to know that we are very. We just don't not only take care of the historic core, we, we take care of landscapes around uh, facilities, museums, uh, administration buildings, this library, which is a mm-hmm. four-acre site. And that's another 3,500 trees and shrubs that we are under our watchful eye. And, and I just want folks to know when they come here, we want them when they are walking up to our main gate and when they step through that gate that they see a, a landscape that Washington himself would be very proud of, that it's all managed, as I've already said, by a professional staff, that every tree and shrub is under our care. And 
and that we want this to be a pristine uh, site that people feel uh, very comfortable in, feel very proud of, and of course when they get to the historic core feel that it's it's represented in a very honest fashion to the time. So um, it's it's I'm very proud that we provide the carpet basically for the mansion and the outbuildings and um, and our staff are just really, really passionate and proud to do what we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I can speak for, for all the visitors when I say that, you know, it's, it's definitely the work that you all do uh, that really helps you lose yourself in, in the historic area. Um, so we're, we're thankful every day uh, for you and, and your entire team. Well, I appreciate um, that very much. Especially because otherwise the library director would make me cut the grass <laughs> at the library, and I, I, I wouldn't do a very good job at it. Okay. Uh, well, Dean, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and joining thank you. us. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.